at least ministers that I've known that in, in Lent, when they give ashes, they're like, oh, the babies and the kids are the hardest and blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I find the older people in my congregation, the hardest because they know you can it. see a little ash already. They, well, you can't in my sorry. hair. That was, sorry. That was, that was, we'll, we'll cut that out. Sorry. <laughs> Not appropriate. No, Brian, that's the beginning of the show. <laughs> you got a little ash right there. Yeah. Um. Welcome to episode 215 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brew pint, a fine wine, or whatever happens to be in your glass. On today's episode, the Reverend Shannon Weston and yours truly, Brian Burkoff, will be joined by special guest, Reverend Amy Pyatt, to address and engage what's happening through a theological lens with a good brew in hand. And whether you're a longtime listener or new to the show, did you know that you can get even more content? Listen to our pre and post show banter. You can do so by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash PT live. Starting at $7 a month, you'll get access to this um, new, this expanded content and a pub theology pint glass, which is coveted, the coveted pub theology pint glass, I will say. So go to patreon.com slash ptlive and check us out and find out more there. Help us to keep going. Absolutely. And uh, this week we'll be talking about happiness, uh, becoming a better person, and suffering. And as already noted, joining us from Texas today is Pastor Amy Pyatt. She and her husband Christian co-host a podcast. Is that still happening? Not currently. Uh, he's opening uh, a taproom and brewery. So, oh, uh, uh, right. Okay. All right. Right. We'll have at some point co-hosted a podcast, the Homebrew mm-hmm. Culture Cast. And uh, Amy's, uh, as we said, pastor, I think singer, songwriter. Tell us, tell us more, Amy. Um, I do love to sing. I love to make up songs. I don't know if that makes me a songwriter. That might uh, be a stretch. Um, yeah, uh, I'm a pastor here in Granbury, Texas, which is kind of a bedroom community to Fort Worth. And um, I'm a mom. And probably, uh, I don't know, I'm also a waitress because my husband's opening this tap room and we've had so many staff out with COVID that lately I've been filling in there too, so. So a wearer of many hats. Beer winch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go, well, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thanks. <laughs> We are familiar with hat wearing here on the show. (laughs) Absolutely. We usually share what beverage we're drinking. I understand you have a busy work day. So what what are you enjoying today, uh, Amy? I have throat coat tea from Yogi. Um, Yeah, I have a board meeting in a few minutes. And if I drink a beer this early, it's only three o'clock in Texas. If I drink a beer this early, I'll just fall asleep, which I really can't afford to do in the middle of my work meeting. So it is good. Like licorice and cardamom or something. Oh, I like that. I like that. Very good. Shannon, what do you got? Um, in honor of our um, 
massive amounts of snow last week. And by massive, I mean, um, a total of six inches over the week, over the course of the week. Um, but it's supposed to snow this weekend as well here in Maryland. I am drinking uh, new Belgium's accumulation, um, winter hazy IPA. So that's Perfect. what I'm having. I love when you pull out, I love when you pull out happy beers. Well, you know, that's I do what I can sometimes. Ogan's not here, so I can get away with it. <laughs> Brian, what are you drinking? I am drinking a local IPA, or I think it's really pronounced locale IPA. Oh, that was bad. I don't like it. Was it? Well, I didn't come up with it, but I think it's clever. I nix it. It's, a, it's an <laughs> IPA, low ABV, only 4%, so good for middle of the day and lower calories. So nice. we'll see how it tastes. Yeah, I'm risking a little bit. I'm at 6.5. And um, I have another meeting after this, but not until way later. So um, just it was that, or I, I, I was saving my Mad Elf for our Christmas episode that then we decided not to do. And I was like, I can't drink a 9% beer and then go to a meeting even several hours later. So I'm just gonna sip this one slowly. Where's the line? Uh, <laughs> yeah. hour, what's the ratio? Yeah, <laughs> this definitely felt like, the end of the line like i couldn't go any any further there you go <laughs> hmm. oh You're so good colorado beer that's my home yes yes the new belgian i do like this one even though it is an ipa and i'm not a fan but i do like this one they're like less than a handful of ipas i'll drink um unless i have a lot of them and then i will drink as many as you want me to <laughs> <laughs> i like them all <laughs> On to today's topics. Um, unfortunately, we had two big, we had several deaths since we've met last, like five or six. We, Derek and I were counting and my husband and I were counting and we were like, okay, we hit the three, but then we doubled the three. And I was like, well, welcome to 2021. Or so, 2022. Or 2022. Yeah, exactly. Whatever year it is. I don't, time has never been such a construct. Um, so Bob Saget, who died unexpectedly just this past weekend, once said, if you don't wake up every day happy, change something. What resonates with you in that quote? What would you push back on? Also, what will you remember about Bob Saget? So I think this is an extremely privileged comment. I'm sorry, I do. Like, I think the statement, if you don't wake up every day happy, change something. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying happiness is tied to stuff in any way, but I think that that is a very privileged comment. That that was my- The ability to change it, yeah. Yeah, like- you're if you're not happy change it like okay whoa easy like <laughs> um plus i i've learned a lot more um about my view of happiness has expanded a lot in the last several years that um happiness isn't always a choice right we don't just choose it i know that we can choose how we look at things and respond to things but happiness mm -hmm. isn't always a choice mm -hmm. so those are my first two initial thoughts on the quote yeah. What do you think, uh, Amy? If you don't wake up happy every day, change something. Yeah. So I resonate with Shannon in some ways. I definitely, my first gut reaction, just, oh, easy for you to say, rich white guy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but um, okay. So there's this like notion that we can follow our bliss, right? And that that's what life is really about. Um, uh, as if bliss or happiness is synonymous with enlightenment and wisdom. Yeah, it's kind and of the I, Joseph Campbell track, right? Wasn't that his right. thing? Yeah. 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 Uh, I think the two are are quite different, and sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they don't. Right. Um, but but joy is is very different in that it's not really tied to external circumstances. Um, I've been reading. I've been obsessed actually with. Um, a woman named Eddie Hillisum, who died at the age of like 24, I think, in a concentration camp. Um, she died in uh, the big one, not Dachau, the other one. Uh, Auschwitz. Thank you. Obviously, I'm not Jewish. Sorry, that was horrible. Auschwitz, yes. And um, she kept a diary every day while she was there. And she had joy in like the worst of circumstances um, that superseded all of that. Um, and she just talked about how she believed in, in love and life and, and humanity and, and then our ability to choose goodness. And she refused to see life as meaningless and people as inherently evil. And actually a lot of her journal was found lying on the sides of train tracks on the way to Auschwitz. Like she, oh she tore the pages and threw them out just hoping that maybe somebody somewhere might find them. And now we have this beautiful collection. Um, and so, yeah, most of us have never been through anything remotely like that. Even the last two years that they've been trying and difficult and, and horrendous for some people yeah. probably can't be compared to that. So I don't know, Bob, I just think it's a little too simplistic, but I, I do agree that sometimes uh, we need to get over ourselves and just choose to see life differently and eddie would agree with that so yeah because she's in a position right where um external change is is difficult if not impossible right circumstances are beyond her control but what can what little control you have is what's internal and how you're approaching the the awful reality you're facing and it sounds like yeah. she was incredibly uh able to do that um but yeah i I agree. This this sounds like a Danny Tanner to his daughter. You know, one of the <laughs> one of the daughters. You know, sitting him down. You know, Stephanie Judith Tanner. If you can't wake up happy every day, then change something. I must be the luckiest dad in the whole world. You're the greatest dad in the whole world. Oh shucks. So I will. Um, I as much as I've learned, one of the things that I have learned is that. The key to that change, um, and this is both in Diana Butler Bass's work and in Brene Brown's work, the key to that change something is gratitude, is finding and living through gratitude, right? A lot of, Amy, what you were saying about joy, it's, it's tapping into that and what we have. Now, I will also put a caveat on all of this, which is I have never once in my life woken up happy because I hate mornings and I hate <laughs> to wake up and I hate everything about them. So like- Okay, sometime <laughs> in my day, I need to feel this way, but don't tell me I have to do it when I first wake up because that is not an expectation I will ever meet, ever. So I'm just going to throw go. that there. That, that's there an important well. caveat. <laughs> I am that's not a morning person. <laughs> I will say also, there's a part of me that didn't trust this quote because I felt like um, growing up, I knew the 
Full House Dad and then the America's Funniest Home Videos guy who was like so staged, literally staged, right? He walked into a fake living room. Come on. <laughs> um, but there was something in that that was very familiar and comforting. And then I remember having like this kind of about face when I saw his standup that was very yes. raunchy, like yes. exceptionally raunchy, in fact. Yep. And it was like, who is this guy? Yeah. Right. And it, in another way, help me to trust him a little more. Like yeah. at least that this feels honest. Um, yeah, it might be offensive, uh, but that felt uh, more authentic to me. So I don't know. He's an interesting guy. Uh, and I, it was more, I, more unfiltered. Yes. The, the stand. Yes. Yeah. I, I will say my favorite um, Danny Tanner moment which I will never forget for some reason it was just burned in my brain, but he was this compulsive cleaner on the show. That was like this big MO. And there's this one episode where he's like vacuuming and he's doing all this stuff and then he's done. And then he takes out this smaller vacuum and he vacuums his vacuum. <laughs> I remember that. Right. Oh my God. And I thought I it just, it's this image that's like burned in my brain that I thought who does that? I love the smell of Lysol in the morning. And then I was, that was my first introduction to an Enneagram one. And that was the end of that. You know, I'd never <laughs> met one before, <laughs> even though we didn't have that language then. <laughs> See, and no. I'm in an seven, so I wake up happy. Not, not every day. That would be mm -hmm. a lie. But I do tend to like feel more optimistic in the morning. Uh, I, I lean more toward where Shannon is. Yeah. <laughs> I can get to happy, but it's not first thing. I like, you know, what makes me happy first thing in the morning when my husband sets that cup of coffee on my nightstand, that is when happiness begins. It, it starts. That's when it's like, possible. That, it's possible. It, it, it's turned. Okay. Happiness. I know is possible when, you know, I hear good morning and you hear the cup sit, like make mm -hmm. that little sound as it sits. And then he gingerly walks away and that is as close as I get to a good morning. <laughs> and the kids see the mommy happiness scale begin to at least show signs of life. I'll be really honest. The kids do not see me in the morning and we're all better for it. Like everybody knows that if I'm up in the morning, we're all having a bad day it's, or at least a bad morning. It's fine. Oh, that's too funny. You got to know your limitations. You got to know. All right. So another person we lost who I loved dearly, dearly loved. Sidney Poitier was the first African-American actor to receive an Academy Award for Best Actor. He said, I always wanted to become better the next day than I was the day before. How does one go about becoming a better person? Mm. It's interesting because when I read the quote, I don't, um, I actually kind of read it as like, he wanted to be someone better the next day. I didn't read it the same way as becoming a better person. Mm -hmm. I read it a little differently and maybe I misquote, maybe I'm misreading the quote. Um, I kind of saw it as like, I did good yesterday, but how can I improve on that? But not in a perfectionist way. I don't know. I read it. It's a tough question for three pastors. <laughs> I always wanted to be someone better the next day than I was the day before. I mean, I think that is sort of an inherent thing we all sort of intuitively feel in a way, like nobody wants to become a worse person or feel like their life is sort of, you know, tracking, you know, 
downwards or backward. Um, but also to me, it feels like I, yeah, I feel like it's a good aspiration, but I feel like the journey tends to be sort of up and up and down or back and forth, or, you know, it's kind of meandering. Like, I feel like there's times where I'm on a path of, of growth and I feel like, okay, you know, I'm getting somewhere good or I'm progressing in a certain area that I've, you know, labeled as a growth area, let's say. And then you feel like you hit a wall or you backtrack or, or you get frustrated with yourself. So for me, like, no, I think that's right. But for me, I guess the idea is, is like, what it, so how do I go about doing that? What did I learn from yesterday? I think this is where reflection comes in, right? What did like, so today was a good day or a bad day or whatever. What am I going to take away from that into moving forward? And that to me is a very hopeful way of living, right? This very, um, I'm not going to necessarily judge. I mean, I can put on like, mm, maybe I didn't handle that the best, but tomorrow I could apologize for that and we'll be okay. Um, and, or if that situation comes around again, what did I learn from this interaction that I didn't like the way I react. Like anyway, that that's reflection, right? So it's, it's reflection and then application. Yeah. How do, how do you read this, Amy? Um, I, in the past couple of years, I've really tried to uh, engage in this of silence, which I resisted for most of my life. Um, and I call it like my, my ego timeout. Um, if I can do it for 15 or 20 minutes a day, I am a better person. I am. I, I mean to say that um, I'm more patient. I'm less critical. I take offense at far fewer things. Um, and I, I'm less reactionary. So um, for me, it's like if I can just sit with the things that I find unlovable, that I criticize in others that I probably don't know how to embrace in myself. Uh, I'm a more honest person. Cause I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm still an asshole and I know it. I don't want to be, I don't want to be as big of an asshole tomorrow. So <laughs> like if I can just put that little ego to sleep and sort of uh, abide, mm -hmm. I do way better, way yeah, I, I, I track with what you're saying. And I, I found too, the way I've tried to explain it, or at least have experienced it is that when I am engaging in um, silence and spiritual practices that are nourishing to me, it expands uh, my buffer of like, mm -hmm. what I'm able to withstand without having a negative reaction or a inappropriate reaction. It just creates more space where I feel more spacious. And something that you know, maybe is mildly irritating, I can see it in context as, well, that's mildly irritating, good for that thing, and I can let it go. Whereas yeah. if I don't have the buffer, that mildly irritating thing might set me off in a way that's not <laughs> exactly not good for anyone. And then I can tell that I haven't been taking that time. I'm not in that place of, of connection spiritually. And it's a good signal that I should be. And my problem as a parent or even as a partner and spouse, or I mean, just being around anybody is oftentimes when that buffer is gone and the things that are setting me off are going on in my head. 
And so the people around me aren't seeing, it's not like a situation that's happening. It's something that's like, I'm worried about something or I'm, so all of a sudden I'm like snapping at people and they're like, what just happened? And it's because I'm trying to work out a situation. Whereas when I'm healthy and when I'm less stressed, I'm able to be like, you know what? That's not dinners. Like I'm making dinner right now. This work problem can, I can think about this later. This isn't right now problem, you know, and and when you're, when you're in stress and when you don't take that time and you don't have those buffers, then you're yelling at the kids to set the table in a way that you're like, what just happened? Like, yeah. and they have no idea or I, and some, and, and I've had to learn to go back and go, wait, what was I just thinking about that caused me? Right. You've got like four or five work problems you're trying to solve <laughs> that are adding to the stress. And you're like, can't you see how difficult this is? Right. And they're like, mom, you're stirring a pot. What is your problem? Like, what is wrong with you? You know, like, right. and, and so it's, it's me being able to go through of doing that check. Like what just made me anxious? Why am I anxious all of a sudden? What was I thinking about? Cause oftentimes it is just, I was thinking about something. Um, I read this book years ago. Um, so it was, it was right before I went on sabbatical. So it must've been early 2019. And it was about like, well, it was one of those really crappy, like working smarter, not harder books. You know, um, it wasn't that one. It was called, um, deep work. And by the way, if you like really want tips on like working better, I, I actually do recommend the book, <laughs> but one of the things that it said was at the end of your day, before you go home, sit down and write down everything that you didn't accomplish today that needed to be accomplished and look at your calendar for the next day and really go over your calendar and so that you know what is expected of you the next day and then go home and everything that you needed to do is written down and you know what you have to do tomorrow and what space you may or may not have to do it and then go home. And when I do that, which I won't say I'm great at, but when I do that, it is so helpful because I can sit there and go, you know what? I don't have anything till 10 tomorrow. I have some space to think. Yeah, like, you've taken it off the right now plate and put it on tomorrow or Thursday or whatever day. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? I need to move that around tomorrow because this thing is more urgent that I didn't get done today. So instead of staying here till eight, I'm just going to move some things around and get it done tomorrow. That's you know. why I can't really get a sermon done till Friday or Saturday. Cause it's like, I have all this time till Sunday. That's a tomorrow. It's always a tomorrow problem <laughs> until there's not a tomorrow before Sunday. Until you learn that two days a week needs to be taken on Friday and Saturday to stop. And no, if I, if I could rework any pastor, if I could rework any pastor's life, I would work. Wednesday through Sunday or whatever. Like I would take Monday and Tuesday off and forget the weekend, but my life doesn't work that way. So. Yeah. I try to take Monday off, but that's still a work in progress. You are a work in progress, Brian. That's for sure. Uh (laughs) Oh, true words are never spoken. All right. Poitier also said, I was the only black person on set. It was unusual for me to be in a circumstance in which every move I made was tantamount to representation of 18 million people. Discuss the pressure that he faced and why such representation is so important. Have you ever felt that you were representing more than just yourself? This is, this is let's just point out that there are three white people on the call. Um, as we talk about and one white male. So I'll just sit back and defer. 
you know, his favorite, um, his favorite work of mine is um, Look Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm. And not necessarily because it was his best performance, but I do think that movie gets to what he's saying in this quote, right? Yeah, socially and culturally such an important film. Yeah, game changer. It was the first yeah. time like even thought about some of that stuff or had a vehicle to, to process it and talk about it in white culture. Yeah. Yeah. And even when I watched it in the nineties, I think, um, it, it was probably the first time that I went, Oh, you can be progressive and also, you know, have these issues come up. You like, you can, these two things really do exist. It really isn't one or the other. And we are not perfect people. And, you know, um, I thought Catherine Hepburn was also amazing in that. I forget who the dad was, but he, they, it was just such a great performance. Hmm. Um, I know it's going to bother us all. It was one of those great old movie star men who played that character so well. Yeah, it, it might have been the film he was he, that he won uh, Best Actor for, where he slaps a, a white person white man. in the film. Yeah. And uh, and I don't remember who it was. I was seeing this on Good Morning America or something, but some um, someone called him and was like, is that really true? Is that gonna be in this movie that you did from another country? It might've been from South Africa. And um, and he's like, yes. And and he made sure that that stayed in the, that that scene stayed in the film. Yeah. Just because it was- That's in the heat of the night, right? Pardon the pun, but because it was so striking, right? A, a black yeah. person, you know, hitting a white person, but in an appropriate way, right? And not getting immediate repercussions like we might expect or culturally has been the, the experience of African-Americans historically to that point and beyond. I mean, I, I can't say that I've ever had an experience. Um, well, I like I've never had an experience where I had to speak for my entire race ever before, you know, it, especially to such a public forum that he did. Um, I grew up in, um, I grew up in a town, uh, it was a small city in Kentucky that um, my high school, we were, um, if it was majority white, it was only slightly majority white. That didn't mean that the white kids didn't quote rule the school, right? There was still this, you know, air about it. But I remember my junior year, um, I walked into our pre-calculus class and I sat down and one of my best friends all through middle school and high school, um, Belinda sat in front of me and she, Belinda was black and the class started and she turns around and she goes, Shannon, I'm, I'm the only black person in here. And I went, no, you're not. And like, <laughs> you know, look around the room and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, you're, yeah, mm -hmm. this is a room full of white kids because it's an advanced class. And, you know, let's be honest, the Kentucky school system was quite racist then. I can't speak for now, but I could take a guess. Um, and then when I went to college, I went to the University of Memphis and I walked into a speech class and I sat down and the class started and I went, I'm the only white person in this class. And it was such like a full circle moment to me. Not that I felt that I was representing or, you know, whatever, but it was just a, oh, this is what that feels like. And I'm 19 years old experiencing it for the first time in my life. 
Whereas there are people that experience this on a regular basis. My husband, one of them, right. Um, Is regularly the only person of color in the room. And Amy, would you say um, being a, and either of you could answer this, uh, frankly, but being a, a woman who's a pastor, that that feels like it carries extra? A little. I wouldn't put it up there with, like, race. Uh, but, right. you know, of course, I get comments all the time, well, you don't look like a minister. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And sometimes I do feel like I'm being asked to speak on behalf of all female clergy or I'm being put in like a box uh, that's bigger than just me. Uh, um, Sure. I I guess the difference is I can leave work, you know, and I can I can just not bring up what I do for a living. Um, I can set it down. Yeah. Um, And I can go to a foreign country and be a minority. I mean, I've, I've done that where I've been the only white girl, uh, but that's a choice. Um, the first time I was like seven or eight, I worshiped in an all black church with my grandparents. And cause my, my grandpa was like in our adjudicatory system, he was like a Bishop, but we call it a regional minister. So we call it. Uh, and so one of the congregations uh, was a black church and we visited that Sunday and he didn't tell me on purpose what we were doing. Uh, and we walked in and everybody was so kind. Um, and I remember being struck by that. I mean, this would have been in the early eighties, I guess, um, how kind everyone was. And I remember thinking, I wonder if a little black girl showed up in my church, how they mm-hmm. treat her. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had also had the experience of forced busing in Texas. Um, I grew up mostly in, in Colorado, that's where I was born and raised, but my parents divorced, my mom moved to Fort Worth. So for one year, I came to school here and it would happen to be the first year they were doing integrated schools, whatever. I mean, this is in the eighties again. Okay. This right. is that long ago. Uh, <laughs> and the solution was the way they were going to, I don't know, end racial segregation was to send a whole classroom of white kids to an all black school across town. So every morning I had to get up 45 minutes earlier and catch a bus at the neighborhood school that I would have gone to. Um, and then they sent us to this little, this little school across town, but they kept us separate the whole time. So we had a separate yeah. lunch, a separate recess, uh, and we stayed in our classroom. And we got in trouble one time because I wanted to learn how to do double dutch uh, jump rope. And so I ran over because they were playing on the other side of the playground and asked if I could learn and I got in trouble. Wow. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I have little, little, small, tiny experiences yeah. with nothing, nothing compared to someone that has to represent what was it, 18 million people. I feel like the women, I think that's a, a genuinely good question, Brian, but I feel like the women that came in the generation and two before Amy and I definitely felt that way. But I will say in my denomination, it, it's no longer, you know, that way. Now I've served two churches, one where I was the second female pastor, one where I was the first female pastor. So those things are still true. And yet in my denomination and in my areas that I have served, I was not the, I was certainly not the only you know, it's not like, and whereas I think the generation before us and then the ones before them, which in our denomination would have been, it was only two generations ago that got 
ordained, women were ordained for the first time. And I can only imagine that they would answer that question very differently, you know, in their experiences and their time. Um, and that's not to say, I know people that I graduated from seminary with were, have been the only people in their presbytery and were trying to fight for maternity leave because that presbytery has never dealt with it before, you know? Um, so that's not across the board, but I do think there's a lot more support today than there was 40 years ago, you know, when, yeah, I think we're coming up on, I think it's 50 we hit 50, I think we're coming up on 60 years of female, like of women ordination, um, nice. ministers, not elders. Yeah. The only way I would be able to answer this question, uh, and this isn't a totally different scenario category. So give that proviso was running for office where you're running to be a representative for, you know, 750,000 people. And the challenge you realize is it's a, a lot of different people, you know, you got people of, you know, every religion, every uh, racial and ethnic background, all these different views on on how you should be governed and what laws we should pass. And you're trying to, you know, bring together the broadest coalition of what makes sense within your values um, that also tracks with people. And that's a really tricky business. It's really challenging to try to, um, yeah, get cohesion and and hear all those, vo you know, hear as many voices as you can and, and make sense of it and, and try to bring something good to that and something that people connect with and track with. But again, totally different. I chose to do that and I walked away and all that. So, <laughs> well, and the only other thing I'll add is, and I don't, uh, is the experience of being the only, um, kind of progressive or non-evangelical type in the room where you feel like you're speaking a foreign language every time you open your mouth and you just disagree with everything that's being, you just have a completely other experience of Christianity than the people that you're in the room with do. And, and I think that's an important thing to name. And, and again, we're not necessarily comparing. It's just, that's an area where I certainly have felt, oh my gosh, I am representing right now, all of progressive Christianity. <laughs> like I, like I am, I am, I am these people have never heard of this concept. Well, before. we had passed it along in our progressive prayer chain. So you were covered. <laughs> I, I, here I am. The sun is going down in my room. So if you're watching this on Facebook, you get to see lots of lights. Um, don't worry. The sun will be down soon. It's almost 4.15. <laughs> you want to jump in with, jump into the river. The Gospels record Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. They also note that the Holy Spirit descended in, quote, bodily form like a dove and that the heavens opened and the voice said, you are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. What is the theological significance of this event in your view? So I just had an epiphany and it's liturgically appropriate to be doing that right now. Is it not? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> a little while ago, maybe a week ago, um, that, okay, this act of surrender and the waters of baptism actually happens in different ways, three times for Jesus in his life. Um, and I can't remember why I was thinking about it. We were talking about uh, maybe Lenten themes, like thinking ahead already as a staff. And um, so I was thinking a lot about what happened in the desert for those 40 days. And I thought, I said, well, you know, 
Jesus surrenders to it. He allows it to happen. Um, and, and like, kind of like what I was saying earlier, intentionally coming to terms with his humanity, surrendering all of it. And then I started kind of nerding out on it. And I was like, wait a minute, there's like a body, a mind and a spirit surrender. So body would be the waters of baptism. It's very embodied. And that's why I still love the ritual because even though I think we're born baptized in the sense of like graced by God, loved for all eternity. Yes. We don't have to do that to get anywhere or gain favor. There is a beautiful embodiment there. Okay. So body. And then the desert is the mind where he really Mm. comes to terms with his grasp on power and being adored and his need to be rescued, right. To prove himself. Um, and I, I, it's all happening. I think, I think it's an allegory for what we do when we get on those hamster wheels of the mind and, um, take offense at things and, you know, ballot out when there's really no one in the room with us. That's what he did for 40 days in the desert. And then the cross is, well, into your hands. I commend my spirit, like a surrender of his spirit. Um, and I think it's really interesting that God, the voice that is heard, is, um, well, we don't know if everyone heard it, do we? We don't know. We don't know that. Yeah, we don't know. Who heard it? But yeah. um, God says for this bodily experience, I'm pleased. Yeah. Um, and that there's some sort of physical representation. Again, we don't know who all saw that. Uh, but it's very, it's very physical. And to me, it, it just represents sort of the, um, the different ways of knowing, experiential, bodily, and then like this deeper, like heart knowledge or mysticism, some call it, that's probably how I identify with it, um, the Holy Spirit um, experience. That's a, not a very good way of saying that, but um, I think there's this element of surrender. And I, I just see that as more significant now than I did before when all of us are being asked to surrender so much right now, whether it's um, a way of life or what we thought we knew as normal or, you know, yeah. <laughs> all the assumptions we made about mm -hmm. where we'd be in 2022. Um, there's a lot of surrendering happening and that we all want to be done with this and it's still not over. Right. Surrender, surrender, surrender. So, right. yeah, it's like not a 40 days in the desert, <laughs> not even 400. Right. We've gone way beyond. Yeah. And I, I always wonder why was i mean we've we use such a dove representation now because of this verse but was mm. the dove already a symbol of some sort right like what why is that the chosen form in scripture mm. um yeah. and and i don't i'm not a hebrew bible scholar or I, i'm not certainly not a first century scholar connection in terms to of, noah maybe i yeah, exactly. Like Noah does let go of the dove. That's true. Like what? So anyway, there, there's the covenant form, right? That, that brings the covenant full circle. Um, 
and I've always been kind of taught, if you will, that like, this is, this is Jesus ordination moment. Um, that this was the moment he was, he was ordained. He was blessed to go do ministry. Commission. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, um, you know, that actor's theater, um, the questions they used to do at the end. And one of the questions was like, when you die and you see God at the pearly gates, like what, what is the thing that you want to be said? And this has always been the thing that I've wanted to be said, right? This is the thing that I want to hear at the end of life is like, it, it's, it's another form of you did good kid, right? It's a, like with you, I am well-pleased. Like I, I'm well-pleased at this life you're living. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's the words that everybody wants to hear from the parental figure in their life, um, whether that's an actual parent or, you know, just someone you trust. And also by extension, of course, I want to hear that from God. And if that's what Jesus need to usher in, you know, this really, really hard work that he is about to do. Um, so that's my only like quick kind of reflection on it, but thank you for the dev for the Noah. Cause that, yeah, now that you say it, it feels obvious, but there it is. <laughs> there, it, there it is. There it is. And it's right after the baptism, right? That he's off into the wilderness so it's yeah kind of, it's kind of like okay you know you're in yeah. and then it's like a shove go you know and it's like the <laughs> first thing is like the hardest thing yeah i'd be curious we'll have to ask eli sometime when he's on here if if um judaism took on that dove symbol in a way that i don't i don't know that they did you know yeah. is that if if yeah it happened at noah but we often talk about the rainbow what was the dove actually a symbol that was taken on taken for yeah, i'd be curious about that that is a good it was question. also a sacrifice at the at the temple right like when yeah. uh yes john named and jesus yeah so hmm, interesting i haven't really thought of that in, in light of the old testament before huh. yeah i'd um have either of you been to israel or been to the jordan yes i was yeah. the last summer oh i'm oh, sorry sorry so I went, um, I went with a class on Judaism actually in, um, in college and my, both my professors were Jewish. And so I think what was really helpful is we went to a lot of like, everything in Israel is the supposed site of, right? Like the supposed site that, you know, we, so we went to all these supposed sites. Um, Cause even though it was like a cultural tour, they were like, we can't not let you see these places. You know, of course we're gonna. So as we went to the Jordan, <laughs> One of my professors was like, it's so dirty and green. And I was like, shh, <laughs> be quiet. It's like, I don't care. Don't ruin this. <laughs> yeah. He was like, why did you ever get in there? That's disgusting. He was, because, you know, the, the baptism at the time was a ritual cleansing and it was supposed to be this clean and. He's like, know, no wonder was, Christianity went wrong. Exactly. He's like, that's, why would you get in that bath? You know, and I was like, all right, enough, like enough with you. <laughs> isn't a proper mikvah yeah <laughs> exactly yeah i mean which was is... mostly for women so no wonder they got the dirty river you know <laughs> yeah you know and so this this moment at the at the river is often also used as sort of this trinitarian moment like this proves the trinity or you know here we have you know spirit um father son and um 
and certainly that is compelling, right, to a degree. But to me, that that sort of tries to too easily sort of say, see, we're right, or our theology is right. Whereas I, I think the way that both of you have described it is more experiential and more um, this this affirmation of this the person that Jesus was and what he represented. And, you know, to just put it in this sort of theological box and then move on, I feel like you miss... Mm -hmm sort of the pathos and the the energy and 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 how we too might live into you know feeling god's affirmation in our lives or, or feeling that okay we too now are, are called to enter a, a phase of ministry that might be prefaced by you know what feels like a desert or feels like a challenge we didn't ask for um so anyway that that's some you of you know my, it's interesting because mm -hmm. as i think about it like we baptize babies amy you're disciples right so you baptize in um whenever yeah like in an in an affirmation <laughs> you know and and brian you baptize babies right well, yeah all ages but yeah i mean we do too including baptism including and most often babies all right yeah so i think about this so the language that's used at baptism is i baptize you in the name of the father and the son of the holy spirit and then we say a prayer over the the person or the child or the baby or whatever and I'm sitting here thinking, um, we did years ago, a renewal of baptism or remembrance, sorry, not renewal, but a remembrance of baptism with adults. And the, it was me and a couple elders and everybody came forward and you put an individual prayer. And what we did was we said, um, name God's beloved with you. God is well-pleased. And that shift to, and then there was a quick, like two sentence in like prayer. And if the elder or I was comfortable with the person, if I knew them, I would just pray something, a couple of sentences. If not, we had this rote, you know, may your mind be full of understanding, you know, been the peace of God be with you, you know, kind of thing. Blah, blah, Jesus love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the <laughs> wisdom, faith, something, you know, right. Move on. Um, but I'm sitting oh. here just, and that would like, people walked away in tears, like mm -hmm. in tears because hearing that just by being them, that God is well pleased with them is completely different. And I'm sitting there thinking, even if we use that language, that's a that's really easy to believe about a baby, right? With you, God is well pleased, and everybody goes, "Yes, yes, they are." But like saying that to an adult, like that's completely. I I just really feel like we could take this language and use it for a a greater good, for lack of a better term, right now. You know, mm -hmm. to really, really use this language in a way that is. Um, affirming and believing. Um, imagine a child in the congregation coming out and using this baptismal language, yeah, you know, beautiful. in front of a congregation. Um, and it doesn't even have to be that, that profound, right? It can just be whatever, some and anything really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that. I'm gonna have to think about that using, using this kind of language for more often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to find something on my phone here. I recently did a ministerial first um, 
my friend is dying of pancreatic cancer and he asked me to do a last rite ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, well, I've done, I've been at the bedside of many people who are dying, but I'm not Catholic. And I mean, that's pretty much a Catholic thing. So I started researching it and there's this beautiful prayer that they use. Um, I took it nice. I just ripped it off Catholic prayers online or something, but um, it's a last rites prayer. And now mm, too many things. Um, talk amongst yourselves. I'll try and find it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's all good. All good. We can bring it out in the post show too. Uh, so. Oh yeah. That's fun. I found it. Oh, oh yeah. What do you got? Um, eternal rest grant unto them. Oh God. And let perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. O Lord, your sorrowing mother, sorrowing mother, stood by your cross. Help us in our sorrows to share your sufferings. Like the seed buried in the ground, you've produced the harvest of eternal life for us. Make us always dead to sin and alive to God. In death, you remain hidden from the world. Teach us to love our hidden spiritual life with you and the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't know. It, it's profoundly different saying this to someone who is receiving this as their last communion, yeah. and like we we washed him. So it was kind of like that bookend to baptism, and yeah. also like a mother or our father bathing their child. You know, yeah. Um, and then we anointed him with oil, and it it was one of the holiest rituals I've ever been a part of. Wow. Um, Beautiful. And he was so uh, receptive to it. And that I think made it even more beautiful. And I mean, it's that that surrender again, just completely giving oneself over. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. People often talk in, um, at least ministers that I've known that in, in Lent, when they give ashes, they're like, the babies and the kids are the hardest and blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I find the older people in my congregation, the hardest because they know it. You can see a little ash already. They, well, you can't in my hair. Sorry, that was, sorry, that was, that was, we'll, we'll cut that out. Sorry, <laughs> not appropriate. No, Brian, that's the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> you got a little ash right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're already a little bit dead. A little bit dead, a little crusty. <laughs> Let me get that. I mean, this, and I, we've said this before, but like one of the hardest, one of the, the trauma for our oldest in our congregation is that this pandemic just hasn't taken two years of their life. This pandemic has taken the last or some of the last two years of their life. And, you know, we were reflecting the other day, like our youngest is nine. This has been 25% of her life. That is a significant portion. Now I have 96 year olds that that is, it is a much less smaller percentage of their life. And so I have a 96 year old who I talked to last week and I put this on Facebook for those of you that are Facebook friends with me and we're talking and he'd had a fall at Christmas and he broke three ribs and he's just in a lot of pain. And he's, he's um, he was born to a family of sharecroppers in rural Virginia. And he tells the story of um, his mother giving birth to his younger brother at home and them coming and cutting off the electricity because they hadn't paid their bill in so long. And this is in the 30s, right? Um, The 20s or 30s. 
And um, he was a World War II fighter pilot. And because of that, got a loan and a, was able to go to college and has since become a very successful man, married the love of his life. He adored who spent 15 years not recognizing him. The last 10, she was in a facility that he went and visited her every single day and she had no idea who he was. And he, on the phone with me said, these have been the hardest two years of my life. And I just, I took, like, I shared it with people because I was like, I think all of us need to hear that right now. And all of us need to put this in perspective that um, we are isolated. And that is one of the most painful things we can go through. And the other factor that I think is going on is that um, when something tragic happens, you kind of, you use the support of those around you to help who, like on one hand, you look at other people and you go, why are you acting all normal? Nothing is normal. Everything is crap. Like this, the whole world sucks. Like, how do you not understand that? And on the other hand, that normalcy, their normalcy of your community, like, pushes you along. It cradles you and it carries you. And, and none of us have either one of those things right now. We're isolated and our community is dealing with the same things that we are. And, and so as much as we look at this moment of Jesus and it, it's a moment of separation, right? It's a moment of like calling him something other, but it's also a moment that like we enter into, we enter into it to baptism. We enter into it in death. We enter into it through like all through the moments of our life. And whether it's in bodily form or spiritual form. And I think that we need to remind ourselves that of a regular basis of like, there is just by being alive, God is well-pleased and, and we are beloved and that needs to carry us through even in these toughest times. Um, even if we feel separated out for that. So I don't know if any of that made sense, but there it is. Oh, well done. Well, I, think you, I think you put a bow on it. That was that was all very good. And Amy, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Yes, thank you, Amy. It was fun, y'all. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And thank you, friends, for tuning in. You can show your love for Pub Theology Live by becoming a supporter on Patreon. Get access to pre and post-show banter and more. Visit patreon.com slash ptlive to get started. And a big thank you to our current patrons. You can listen to the show anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And our top three cities tuning in this week, number three, Columbia, Maryland. Number two, one of my favorite cities, Columbus, Ohio. And number one, Lebanon, Indiana. So wherever you are tuning in from, uh, we thank you. And uh, you can watch us live on Tuesdays on Facebook Live, usually around 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Today we were a little early, but check it out. Uh, like the page, uh, Pup Theology on Facebook. And if you'd like to start or create or join a pre-existing Pup Theology gathering in your town check out all the information at pubtheology.com until next time friends drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing amy thank you so much for joining us this was great thanks i had fun it just this is my first day back out of quarantine because we had it we, we got yeah you just you just getting over it yeah and it 
mean, and we've been so careful, but. It was the people that didn't have to go to work that went to work and then took off their mask around 30 other people. You know, it's- Who didn't around. have to go see Spider-Man and went Okay, I'm sorry. Mask. We went and saw Spider-Man too. We did like, too. See, it, it was pretty good. It's good. It was so good.